Hello and welcome to episode 43 of Linux After Dark. I'm Joe. I'm Chris. I'm Gary. And I'm Dalton. Welcome back, chaps. What's the longest you've spent troubleshooting a simple problem? This is a question that you posed, Dalton. Yes. So this week I was working on setting up GitHub Actions for a repository that I have. And I set it all up. I ran inside of a container because that's the right thing to do, right? And got everything running, got the tests running, and it kept failing. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. These were the tests for aptly, an apt archive manager. I'm not afraid to talk about that. And I went through, and the test checks, if I set a file and do chmod000 on it, I can't write to it. That's the test. And it kept failing. It could write to the file. And I went around this for... About six hours trying to figure out everything that I could, putting through all of the troubleshooting that I could figure out. You know, is it something with Docker? Is it OverlayFS doing it? Am I accidentally using AUFS because that always breaks everything? Like, what is going on here? Root can write to any file, even if it doesn't own it. (laughs) So the problem was root. The problem was I was root inside the container. I want to know what are some simple things like that you know, I ran it as root and it broke kind of things that you have spent hours troubleshooting. So for me, it was OpenVPN that tripped me up and I spent hours and hours troubleshooting. So it was just setting up a site-to-site VPN between two offices. At one end, there was a Sophos UTM and at the other end, I'd put in a PFSense box. Should have been a really, really straightforward thing to solve. And the only thing that I really tripped up on here was the cipher section of the OpenVPN config file. So the Sophos UTM, for whatever reason, when it exports the OpenVPN config file, used to truncate the cipher and just put it out as AES-256 and not AES-256-CBC or AES-256-GCM. And yeah, I lost an entire day to that <laughs> where I was choosing GCM when it should have been CBC or the other way around. I can't remember which one it was now. It was a mixture of that and the tunnel IP range conflicting with something we had somewhere on like a Azure VNet or something stupid and traffic not reading properly. Anyway, yeah, just not paying attention to the environment variables when setting up OpenVPN was the one that I lost a boat at a time. So when that kind of thing happens, does OpenVPN tell you that you're doing something wrong, or does it just kind of stop working? Uh, It just fails to negotiate a connection, which is really, really irritating. So yeah, for the Cypher Suite stuff, just failed to negotiate a connection. The tunnel just sat there establishing for a really long time. And because I was at a site that at the time had very limited connectivity back to the main office... I was kind of traveling between the two offices and reviewing the config on each end, and it was all a little bit of a pain. And then for the routing stuff, obviously nothing told me that, because one end was trying to route the traffic via the VPN tunnel, the other stuff was trying to route the traffic up into Azure, as it always had and always should have done. So hang on, you weren't troubleshooting this from one place, SSH'd into both of them. You were physically traveling between two offices to try and fix this. <laughs> yes, I was. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and they were only like a 10-minute walk between each other, but it was oh, enough okay. that it was a real pain in the backside every time I was like, ah, oh, I just want to check what that config setting says on the Sophos box. Yeah, with hindsight, probably should have just picked up a second laptop from the stack of laptops, but 
is what it is. Well, my one is also permissions related, and it's just .ssh directory permissions, the permissions on the directory, the permissions on the individual files. I still couldn't tell you what they should be now. I'd have to look it up every time I do this. And uh, I redid my NAS recently and set all my backups up and everything and just assumed it was all working and then realized about two days later, hang on, the backups haven't worked. And then looked into why. And I was like, ah, oh, I don't really get this. Things seem to be working. A couple of days later, they still weren't working. And then it must have taken me about two hours to get to the point where it dawned on me, hang on, I didn't set the permissions correctly on .ssh, and it was just that simple. And I, I tried just so many different things before it dawned on me. It's the permissions. And I don't know what's wrong with me. I think that qualifies because it was, it must have been probably about three hours over about a week of troubleshooting this thing that came down to three commands. I always have this problem when I'm setting up something new with SSH or setting up SSH inside of a container or something because it's not the first thing you think of. And when you SSH into the machine from something else, it just says, uh, permission denied, public key. Yeah. Uh, why? And SSHD won't tell you unless you put it in verbose mode, and they're just like, oh, the permissions are wrong. Well, thanks, you could have told me that two days ago. Yeah, I don't want to have to do SSH-VVVV to try and figure that out every <laughs> single time. But it's on the demon, not on your client, that you have to have it tell you that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's, it's really irritating, and I'm still not entirely sure I always set the permissions properly, but I do know <laughs> I always set them to the same thing. <laughs> Well, it does warn you if they're too open, the permissions, but it doesn't warn you if they're too locked down, I think. Or maybe it's only on the client side that it warns you, not on the server side. I can't even remember now. It is only client side because it won't tell you on the server side unless it's in verbose. I have had this problem so many times. And you'd think we'd learn. <laughs> yeah. Like at some point you'd think, oh yeah, I'm having an SSH issue. Maybe I should turn on verbose mode and see if I'm an idiot again. <laughs> I've just fixed that on the server side by using the option to pull the key from GitHub oh. to install it. <laughs> and then I know that it's Canonical's problem if it's wrong. Oh. We had this issue at work with WSL because quite often users will discover that WSL is a thing after they've used Windows Terminal. So the SSH keys are stored on a Windows file system in the default location for Windows. And then if you just point WSL at that directory, it doesn't understand what metadata and file permissions are under Linux. So it just fails. So you either have to copy them inside the environment, or you have to change the mount settings so that permissions are affected. But you've just had a conversation as what I would consider to be fairly experienced Linux users. When you transplant that to people that are encountering SSH for the first time, wow. <laughs> then it starts to become really <laughs> difficult because you end up basically on a Teams call, talking people through it and explaining and getting them to do, yeah, dash V, dash VV or dash VVV until you get to the sum of it. And it often ends, to be, ends up being incredibly simple. <laughs> but it's not. It, it trips everyone up all the time. It is weird. Well, it's funny that's reminded me of a desktop one that also basically boils down to permissions, and that is problems with snaps. Trying to preview the Linux Matters site, which is built with Hugo, for example, recently, 
I wanted to build that in a certain directory, but it just wouldn't work. It was just giving me weird errors. And thankfully, I was on the call with Popey, Wimpy, and Mark. And I think Popey said, have you installed the snap of Hugo? I said, yes. He's like, oh, right, yeah. It has to be in your home directory then. Yeah, I encountered that with the snap of Authy, where my home directory had sim links to a data drive, which was on a separate physical device. And it just would silently crash because it would detect that that was the case and it wouldn't like it. Yeah, and I've had similar problems with Get iPlayer and I think YouTube DL or YouTube DLP, where I'd be SSH into my NAS and I'd want to download something onto one of the drives that are served by Samba, but it just would give me weird errors. And then I worked out, no, I have to do it in my home directory and then move it over after I've downloaded the file. There are connectors and things as well, but I think the snap has to be plugged into them, but I don't use them as much as I once did. So I am in territory that's unfamiliar these days to me. My uh, longest troubleshooting, I think, was a little bit similar to Gary. I was setting up my router, which just has two Ethernet ports. It has a WAN port, which I plug into a modem to get just an external IP, and then a LAN port, which goes off to a managed switch. So I use VLANs, and it's a little bit complicated, but I'd set it up before, actually, as a what they call a router on a stick. So you actually just have one Ethernet port on the router to the managed switch, and it carries WAN and LAN, and you use VLANs to trunk it all down one cable and let the managed switch divvy it out, and then the firewall can handle it. This was simpler, supposedly, and I hooked everything up, and I could not get my Wi-Fi access points to work. I would connect a device to it and it would get an IP address on the correct VLAN, but then it just wouldn't route traffic. And I spent hours reconfiguring, retrying, doing everything, probably about four hours. And then at the end of the entire process, I just rebooted the access points and they worked. And I could have used the configuration I used (laughs) at the very, very beginning of that entire process and just rebooted the access points. And I literally heard my own voice in my head when I used to say to clients who had separate boxes, because I used to get mesh set up for people. So they would have the ISP router, but then I'd tell them disable the Wi-Fi and then connect this mesh system up as access points. But if anything goes wrong with your network, turn it all off and build it from the middle. I would always say that. Turn on the router, wait, let it get connectivity, then turn on your access points. And I wasn't even following my own advice. And I I wanted to hit myself in the head. (laughs) Okay, this episode is sponsored by Servermania. Go to servermania.com slash LAD to get 15% off dedicated servers recurring for life. Servermania has over two decades of experience building high-performance infrastructure hosting platforms for businesses globally. They offer a wide range of fully customizable dedicated cloud, co-location, and IP transit services, and free initial consultations. Servermania offers a 100% uptime SLA with some of the best bandwidth pricing in North America on network speeds of up to 20 gigabits per second in nine locations worldwide. With Servermania, every customer receives a dedicated account manager, free 24-7 live chat and support, with one of the quickest response times in the industry. So go to servermania.com slash LAD to find out why my friend Alan Jude has been a Servermania customer for over five years. Use the promo code LinuxAfterDark to get 15% off dedicated servers recurring for life. That's servermania.com slash LAD and promo code LinuxAfterDark.
when I first moved in to where I am now, I was a little confused because the way they have the internet stuff set up is everyone connects to their managed access points, or they have a trunk port going off of the access point into the living room on an ethernet jack. Presumably just for, like, web TV kind of stuff, but I ain't about that. So I got everything connected up to the trunk port, and it gave me 192.168.1.0 slash 24. Everything's fine, no problem. And I started setting up my stuff, you know, my NAS and everything. And sometimes I'd try to connect to my NAS, and it'd just time out. I just couldn't figure out what was going on. At one point, I actually had to boot the NAS into, like, some type of recovery mode and hook it directly up to my laptop so that I could use the Synology software to tell it, no, you idiot, use this Ethernet configuration. It's a really weird process, but I couldn't figure out why I kept losing this network connectivity. And then, for some reason at some point, I connected up to the building managed Wi-Fi and did an IPA on it. And I saw that it's using 192.168.0.0 slash 16. So sometimes I was just trying to go to my NAS and I was connected to someone else's computer in the building. <laughs> nice. I mean, quite why they've used a class C with a slash 16 is beyond me. It's just you don't usually do that. Oh, that makes me so upset. They should really have used the 172. 16, 17 kind of space for that, but they didn't. No. I mean, they configured things in a weird way, and then it screwed you over. <laughs> There's a lot of networking things coming up, funnily enough, but I set up a little system for my father-in-law, and he has an unmanaged switch on quite a long cable around the side of the living room, and then it goes in, and there's various devices connected, and uh, he contacted me and said, everything's gone down in the TV. And I did say, can you just check all the cables are plugged in? Bearing in mind, he's quite experienced in IT like at this stage. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I've checked them all. They're all plugged in. So I was like, okay, can you boot up a laptop and I'll get a tunnel in? So I had a remote desktop into a laptop and then I had SSH to all the devices on the network. And I was pinging all of this stuff. I looked in the configuration. I was reaming through all the different troubleshooting that I could do. And I was like, this is so weird. Like an entire block of the network is just gone offline. And <laughs> are the lights on on the, on the box? Yep, the lights are on the box. The lights are on all the machines. Can, can you SSH in? No, I can't. And then he checked the cables again. And one cable was unplugged, which was the cable back to the router that had been knocked out by my mother-in-law hoovering the apartment. And that's just the way it goes down. Now, what it made me realize is all of this stuff is why Linus Torvalds came up with version control type things, I think, and other people. Because there is like a kind of fever state that you get into when things go wrong and you're trying to fix them, where you might miss a very obvious step and then not think about it again and go down a path and down a path and down a path. And then you realize, oh, it was just that one thing at the beginning, which I didn't check. And you have then messed up about 20 other things that didn't need changing. <laughs> and you then have to go back and revert them all. So I start to understand why that has become a sensible way of working on these things. There's also the problem that every time you go in to troubleshoot something, you're just starting with something random the first time. And sometimes you get lucky. You get the right thing that was the problem. And most of the time we just 
don't. Yeah, this is true. And sometimes you can't even see the problem <laughs> is uh, one that I've had before. One of the things that I used to have to do when I was adminning Windows boxes was grab a certificate thumbprint from the Windows certificate store and put it in a .NET web.config file, which all seems very simple. You open MMC, you add the certificate snap in, you find the certificate for the thing that you want, go to the properties, you get the thumbprint, you copy and paste it into the config file, you save it, you restart the .NET application. All should be fine until it's not and it doesn't work. And it turns out that what happens is when you copy and paste a certificate thumbprint from the .NET MMC snap-in for certificates or whatever it's called, there is a hidden space character at the start, (laughs) which is super annoying. And every single year when I had to do this certificate renewal, it would catch me and there would be, oh yeah, shit, it's that missing space thing. But the first time I did it, it was hours and hours of trying to figure out what had happened. And you just go to the first character, you click backspace, everything's fine. I had a lot of things like that when you copy and paste MAC addresses, and some things like dashes and other things like colons. That's another one that's really, really got me before. Yeah, I find that there are just some things that should be standardized and aren't. Or they are standardized, but no one gives a shit. Yeah, that's also true. Like Unify and their stupid network thing, where instead of being .0 slash 24, oh no, .1 slash 24. Why? Unify is the only place that has that. Well, I recently had a cable-related issue, and you're going to know exactly what that was when I tell you what the symptoms are. So my NAS was acting a bit weird. Like I was, could only read and write to it at about 100 megabits per second rather than gigabit. And it was all working fine, but it just was being really slow and I just couldn't work it out. The cable was in seemingly and no, it turned out the cable was half in. <laughs> oh my God. It still worked? Yeah. So it dropped down to 100 megabit rather than gigabit. Yeah. Because you can do 100 meg across two pairs rather than the four pairs that one gig needs oh well quite often those clips will break or become less uh, tight and there's actually i saw on uh, mastodon there was a there's a 3d printed slide on mm. replacement for them available now that just yeah. repair the cable without <laughs> which is quite clever i would have saved me throwing away so many cables over the years <laughs> oh well i bought a kit to just put new ends on who designed rj45 well who designed usb because <laughs> <laughs> I used to do a bit of what Chris used to do, a bit of the residential IT support. It was just kind of a sideline. But there was a person who just said, oh, my printer just won't work. I just, no matter what, I've, I've plugged it in. You know, I said, are you sure it's plugged in? All right, okay, I'm going to have to come. And I looked and it was, the USB cable was stuffed into the RJ45 port on the laptop. <laughs> it's the exact same size, yeah. It's the same width. Why, would, why wouldn't they just make it a little bit bigger or smaller? I cannot tell you the number of balked HDMI ports I've seen from over-judicious attempts to make it a USB port. (laughs) (laughs) Hell, I just tried to plug a USB thing into Ethernet the other week. I couldn't figure out why my dock wasn't working. (laughs) Yeah, and DisplayPort and HDMI are just close enough that I've tried to ram that in wrong and almost (laughs) broken the port before. Are we just stupid? I think we might be, yes. Are computers not designed for humans? Is that the problem? Maybe they're designed for really super intelligent humans that haven't evolved yet. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I do want to give us some credit here because it's not my story, but it's my friend. When he was doing IT support in his office, 
an employee called him and said, oh, my new printer's just been delivered to my desk. I can't get it to work. And so he said, oh, you need a USB cable. So they don't put them in the box because it's a ripoff because they want to sell you one in the shop for like 30 pounds. But we've got some in the stockroom. I'll come bring it to your desk. So he plugged it in and then he thought, oh, it would just be detected. And this was quite a while ago. He went back to his desk and then the phone rang again. And the employee said, oh, it's not working still. And he said, oh, is there a CD in the box? So this does date the story quite a bit. Yeah, there is. Okay, just pop that in the computer and then it should autoplay. And then just click install or, or whatever and it will sort it out. So he hung up the phone. The phone rang again. I put the CD in, but nothing's coming up. Okay, autoplay might be disabled. I'll come back. So he came back. He pressed eject on the tray CD-ROM. It was empty. And she was like, oh, is that where it goes? He was like, yeah, where did you put the CD? And because she had a Mac with a slot insert drive, she found a gap which she thought looked like a slot insert drive and just pushed the CD in. So he just unscrewed the side panel and the CD was just leaning on the motherboard <laughs> inside the case. <laughs> you mentioned this, but I have the exact same story. And it was a solicitor's office that I was doing IT support for. And uh, yeah, this solicitor phoned us and uh, he's like, I've put this CD in my computer and I can't get it out. <laughs> we were like, yeah, we were like, use the paperclip in the emergency eject hole and everything. He's like, no, I don't think you understand. The CD is in my computer. <laughs> And we went out, and lo and behold, what had happened, same thing. He pushed it in the gap between the two five and a quarter inch base. Oh, the files are in the computer. Exactly. The CD was in the computer. He wasn't lying. <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Tailscale. Go to tailscale.com. Tailscale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point -point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer -peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com to try it for free on up to 100 devices. That's tailscale.com. Quick bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to linuxafterdark.net slash support. And for either $5 or $10 a month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed of either just this show or all the shows in the Late Night Linux family. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at linuxafterdark.net. Let's do some feedback. Adwhite says, Linux challenge idea. Determine the most noob-friendly way to set up a noob-friendly distro and desktop environment, sounds good so far, with ButterFS, <sighs> separate partitions for root and home. And then it goes on about ButterFS snapshots need to be in the grub menu and available for selection and auto snapshots for this, that, and the other. <sighs> 
I suppose the real challenge is do a Butterfest challenge without swearing. <laughs> Am I just brainwashed by Jim and Alan when it comes to ButterFS? I just realized that I've been using ButterFS on my laptop for a year. Fedora installs it by default. I didn't even notice. I was going to say, the real answer to this is not to just install OpenSUSE, because it does do all of this stuff by default, as far as I know. Doesn't Mint have some snapshotting thing? Does it install the ButterFS by default? Timeshift, it's called, yeah. And it, he actually mentions that in the email. Yeah. If you open up Timeshift and it detects ButterFS, then it will integrate with the snapshotting system, as far as I'm aware. Huh. Otherwise, it will go back to hard-linked rsync, I think, if you're on an EXT4. Eh, good enough. I've never used ButterFS. So I don't have any opinions. The, the, the problem is once negativity surrounds something, it's hard to shake it off. And I'm sure in the, you know, even Jim, you know, Jim wrote that article for ours where he looked at ButterFS and he said, and a lot of people conveniently forgot that to then just get their pitchforks out. He didn't say it's totally in the bin. He did say for certain setups, it's okay. But once you start getting into complex RAID setups, then his opinion, which I probably tend to agree with, is that ZFS has just got a better track record. My worry is where does it live if you're not running BSD these days? But that's another another matter. Yeah, if you want it on your root partition, then it's probably not a good idea to use ZFS. If you want the snapshots, you're probably better off with ButterFS. But then you get into the whole, well, do you really need to snapshot your root partition? Surely that's almost ephemeral at this point. It's too bad no one made LVM better, because doesn't it solve all these problems just by itself? You know, you put your file system on top and LVM solves snapshotting and stuff for you. Does it do checksumming and the, the kind of twinkly bells of ZFS and ButterFS, though, to the same degree? No, but for the most part, I mean, that's probably not what you're after it for, especially if you have one disk. True. I don't know. And I think I tend to agree with Jim's assessment in terms of at least what's on root on my machine in that I can grab an Ubuntu installer and have my machine with the OS installed within 15 minutes and then I've pretty much scripted most of the setup of everything else so certainly within an hour I can be back up and running and from what I've played with with ButterFS before if something goes wrong and I guess when something goes wrong I'm spending a lot more than that one hour trying to fix it. Am I just the only person who hasn't had bad luck with ButterFS? I mean, Gary, I know you have a Synology box. That's not really ButterFS RAID because it's doing LVM, and ButterFS tells LVM that the checksum is bad, and then LVM finds the old block for ButterFS. It's weird. I I've looked at the code, but am I just the only one who's never had problems? No, you're definitely not. There's loads of people using ButterFS who don't even know they're using ButterFS, and that's how it should be. Yeah, well, that's exactly the situation with the Synologies, right? Like Dalton said, it's this weird ButterFS and LVM and whatever else hybrid setup. Right, because ButterFS rate doesn't work. Yeah, but it does just work. And for the most part, I completely forget about the fact the files are sitting on ButterFS. I tick the checksumming box when I create a volume on it, and it just does its thing. And I think, yeah, in those kind of use cases, it's perfect. And by that token, there are millions and millions of people using ButterFS with no issue. But what about the first part of the question, if we if we edit this down to the, the real nub of it? Determine the most noob-friendly way to set up a noob-friendly distro. Surely just install Mint. <laughs> if Mint is ButterFS by default, I did not do my research before this. I don't think it is. 
what I mean is is that you can, like you could install Ubuntu onto ButterFS if you use the advanced part of the installer. Then if you then load up TimeShift, it will say, oh, this is ButterFS, I will use ButterFS snapshots. Okay. So out of the box, if you just follow a fairly vanilla install path for Linux Mint, it will put it on ext4 still. Whereas, as you said, Dalton, Fedora, and I, I, I'm not that well-versed in OpenSUSE, but I think OpenSUSE as well, they have gone down the butter by default route. Yeah, OpenSUSE is absolutely butter by default on root, say. Maybe that's the answer. Just install one of the distros that comes with it by default. You don't get all the snapshotting automatic stuff then. You very much don't get that because no one's integrated it yet. That's why Fedora went ButterFS by default, so that people would start developing that stuff. But Fedora is absolutely not the answer to a noob-friendly distro. I don't know if OpenSUSE is either, though I guess I haven't used it in anger. Yeah, I've not used it enough to really say, but Linux Mint, I think, for its various ills, is definitely noob-friendly on the right hardware. Mm -hmm. Right, well, we better get out of here then. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, but until then, I've been Joe. I've been Chris. I've been Gary. And I've been Dalton. See you later. <laughs>